You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. We are going to read, continue in uh, the book of Job. And Job now finally gets mad. Like we all, like when I, when I read Job 23, I'm like, thank God. Because up until now, you've just been to the way I would never be. Like, I would never let God do that much to me and not lose my marbles like crazy. So Job finally does. And in Job 23, he says this. He says, today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Let's, let's read this like humans and not like prim and proper church people, okay? Like, this is what we would all be saying, but a whole lot more bleeps. So we'll let the Bible be poetic for us. But you can, in your mind, interject your own words. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would not know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. He would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Job is saying, I have not done anything wrong. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. Can I get a witness from somebody that we've tried to find God and it feels like he's not anywhere to be found? On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness nor because thick darkness covers my face. And then in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 22, the connection between what we just read and what's going on in Job's life and this story that we're about to read is a terrifying connection. And as he was getting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him, Jesus, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. Become like Job. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. As we all would be disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Holy Spirit, I pray that this message will be like dynamite and just blow things out of inside of us to create space for you. I pray that this would be uncomfortable. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be in that discomfort. I pray that you would be in the tension that is being created in these texts. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask that you would be with us as I speak and as we listen to what you have to say today. In your name, amen. You may be seated. These two messages are designed to thrust us into a need, not just a want, for the Holy Spirit. It is not enough for us to want the Holy Spirit. We have to need him. We have to need him. 
Not one person in this room, including myself, wants to need him. We would just like to want him when we want him to show up. The rich young ruler wanted God. Job needed him. We really just want to want him. We don't want to need him. The story of Job ends with Job talking to God. The story of the rich young ruler ends with the rich young ruler walking away from a conversation with God. Having nothing kept somebody in the presence of God. Having too many things made somebody need to walk away from him. We will do a lot of work. And I read a lot of really bad commentaries on the story of the rich young ruler because it is inhumanity, even our best theologians, to just not want to be honest with the text for the rich young ruler and for Job. God took everything away from Job. God told the rich young ruler, everything you earned, everything you did, everything that your talent bought you, go get rid of it. Well, it's metaphorical. No, hold on, it's not, though. It's not. Sometimes that is all I can say out loud to God. And I'm not lying. But the Spirit intercedes with groanings that are too deep for words. Out of the mouth of babes. That's why we need that sound in the sanctuary. Because sometimes our arrogance is so high that we only talk to God in words. We stop crying. We stop groaning. We stop running out of words. When we run out of words, we walk away from him. Tongues begins where words end. That's why the story of Hannah and Acts chapter 2 have the same theme. Eli looked at Hannah and said she must be drunk because she's just murmuring. And when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts, they said they must be drunk because they're speaking in strange languages. The Spirit shows up only when words fail. So whether it's the fullness of your grief like Hannah or whether it's the joy and the power of the Holy Spirit, we should run out of words real fast in this house. And then prayer should start. Trust We talked about last week, the Holy Spirit, trust inside the edges. And we said that a peace that passes understanding is a peace that exists in a way that we don't understand it. And what that simply means is a peace that passes understanding is a peace that exists where peace should never exist. Which is a long way of saying the peace that passes all understanding is a peace that happens before our situation is resolved. For us, peace merely means the end of situations that cause no peace. But the Spirit says, I will fall on a situation that is not resolved, that is causing chaos, and I'll give you peace before we resolve it. We don't want that. We don't want that. Most of us will be good because we're respectful in church and we'll be like, that's right. We don't want it, though. We want peace to be the removal of things that cause no peace. We don't want peace to be a reality that God can give us without our conflicts going away. Without the relationship healing. Without our kid coming home. Without our body being healed. Without our past somehow mysteriously changing as if the mistakes that were made by us or to us never happen. 
We just want a pass. We just want a peace that says nothing bad ever happened and nothing bad will happen. But that is not the peace Jesus says. Jesus said the world can give you peace, but the peace I give you will be greater. So he says there's two kinds. And he says in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So our peace and our hope are the same thing. And hope that is seen is not hope. Which means that the peace we will walk around with is not the peace of resolve. It's the peace of hope. And that is just the truth. Preachers will spin this up one side and down the other, but that is just the truth. The truth is the reality. That our peace is rooted in hope and we will not see the outcome of it until Jesus comes back. And so we need, we can't just want, we need the Holy Spirit to know how to grapple with that. We need the Holy Spirit so badly because we can't have hope without him. We can't have peace without him. We can't love the way Jesus loved without him. We have to more than want him. How do we know if we just want God? Here's one way. Your opinion and your want can always be at odds with each other. If my want ever, if my desire for God ever grapples with my opinion for more than two seconds, I'm not in a place of need. Listen, somebody who's starving doesn't look at a menu. Beggars can't be. People who want to eat look at menus. People who need to eat devour whatever's in front of them. So if my opinion and my desire for God ever even for a second stand next to each other, there's only wants in my life. There's not a need for him. Because need will stiff arm my opinion and knock it down and run into the end zone every single time. Need will defeat my opinion more than anything else can. It doesn't matter what my preference is. If I need something, I'm going to get it. A lot of us, myself included, have been looking at the Holy Spirit menu for too long. Looking at price. I would love to have that, but it might cost me too much, so I'll take something lesser. I'm going to preach a menu. I'm going to preach a menu. Who needs the Bible? Here's the reality. Honesty comes after trust. Honesty exists because of trust. Honesty makes us weak in all the ways that leads to strength. If there's no honesty in our lives, if we cannot be honest about ourselves to God like Job was, if we cannot for real be honest, and we're going to talk about this today, if we can't be honest before God, we will be useless to each other. Because who are people in the Bible that, like all of us, express their dishonesty by hiding? Adam and Eve? Job says, oh, that darkness would cover me and my face would be hidden from the Almighty. The rich young ruler walks away. Hiding pulls us from community. Hiding pulls us. The best relationships in this room are the relationships that can endure the threat of honesty. If we're in in this room in relationship with anybody in any capacity, and we know in ourselves we have yet to be honest with them, we still don't know what kind of relationship we have. The only time you know if you have a good relationship is if everything is out on the table that's appropriate for that relationship. I use those words very carefully. <laughs> your best friend is not your spouse. So you, don't, you need to know the kind of relationship you have to know what the edges are for what you're supposed to be honest about. Job hides. Adam hides. The rich young ruler hides. And what are they all not doing? blessing their neighbor because they're busy hiding. When we hide, when we're not honest with God, 
we are unable to be salt or light because we are not in the light as he is in the light. So I want to move through this. The New Year's Eve syndrome. Here's the fatal flaw of our New Year's resolutions. I'm going to try harder this year. That's the fatal flaw. I beat up on New Year's Eve resolutions all the time because my wife and I had an argument about it once. She thinks they're cool. I think she's wrong. I know she's wrong, whatever. (laughs) But my New Year's resolution is not going to be argue about it anymore. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to failing in that New Year's resolution. (laughs) Resolve is what we say at the beginning of something. I'm going to have more patience. I'm going to speak nicer to that coworker. I'm going to be a lot more patient with my kids. It takes trust and it takes strength to even have the resolve to say, I need to grow up. I need to be more mature. I need to stop letting my wounds define me and I need to start letting them heal, right? These things take maturity. But at the point of attack, anybody can wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be more patient today. But the minute you're on 684 trying to get to your job in White Plains and a school bus broke down and everyone wants to stop and see, because I've never seen a car broken down on the side of the road before. So let's stop on a highway and just take a look at this amazing sight that is a school bus parked on the side of the road. Kids, you've never seen anything like it. I commuted to White Plains for a few years, and I hated those people. It's at the point of attack. See, you can wake up and you can resolve in the morning, but at the point of attack, it is not trying harder that you need. It is not resolve that you need. It's weakness. It's weakness that you need. Because when you're at the point of attack, the only way to follow through on your resolve It's to say, God, right now, I cannot follow through on my resolve. Only when space is created does the Holy Spirit fill that space. At the point of attack, whatever you have resolved in your life, and from little things to the largest possible realities, whatever your resolve is, It takes strength to even admit that you need the resolve, and that is a good thing. But at the point of attack, you don't need your strength anymore. You need to admit weakness. And that is when we have the chance of living a new creation life. That's where we need the Holy Spirit. Willpower is needed to make the resolve, but weakness is is needed to follow through on it. So last week, we talked about five ways to know whether or not we have a lack of trust in God. And I want to revisit them because we're going to add something to them this week. So here's five ways, and I won't won't go through them like I did last week, but here's five ways that we know that we have a lack of trust. Now keep in mind, you need trust in order to have honesty before God. You have to be able to trust him in order to say in that moment that you are failing to do the very thing that he's called you to do. Or that you're afraid or that you're embarrassed, or that you, you feel like you can't repent, or you feel like you can't be honest with somebody. Like whatever that vulnerable moment is when you come out from hiding, when you come out from behind the tree like Adam and Eve, that moment, there needs to be some trust there. So trust first, but then trust has to immediately be met with honesty before God. So what are the, first, what are the ways that we know that we lack trust in God? One, 
we respond instantly to triggers. We don't take any time to think. We don't take any time to process. We immediately start handling things that make us feel vulnerable or uncomfortable. Immediately start handling it. I'm going to respond right away. What should I say? I'm going to respond right now. They posted. I'm going to post back. What do we say? <laughs> Got to say something right now. I'm going to email back. Like, my wife knows when I'm sending an angry email because I think I type harder. <laughs> I've broken a keyboard. It's a true story. Like, text, you know, t uh, emails to, like, the department leaders are like this. And then that person says, hey, pastor, I just want to critique something in your sermon. I'm like, <laughs> just don't respond right away to everything. It, it actually shows a profound lack of trust in God. I'm not saying never respond, but just not right away. Excessive conversation during unresolved issues. Like, you're not looking for counsel. You're just looking for somebody to tell you you did a good job because you're not sure if you did or not. So you start telling all of your friends and everybody everything that's going on in your life because all you're really looking for is not advice. You're looking for at least one person to say, hey, you made the right decision. And honestly, this is how pathetic we all are. There could be somebody that we hate, but if they ever agree with the decision we made, we love them in that moment a lot. <laughs> I can't stand them. Pastor, that was a great message. You know, but I think they're coming around. I think, I really think they're coming around. The Lord is at work. Who am I to stand in the Lord's way? Impulsive seclusion or indulgence due to fear of tragedy. It gets a little serious now. Either keeping ourselves or our families away from things like crowds or things in the park or airplanes or whatever it is. Keeping somebody away from the possibility of tragedy or overindulging in our relationships because we think today might be the last day. That fear that causes us to be impulsive and hide or impulsively indulgent shows a lack of trust in God. Overanalyzing of our future. The fear of making a mistake today because it could impact your life forever. Like the, the thought that we could ever make a decision that God would be so displeased with that it removes Good Friday. We, we really, we deal with this. Like in, innately in ourselves, we deal with this. We're afraid that, okay, I've made bad decisions before and they've been good, but we always feel like the next one won't have the grace on it that all the other ones had. And then finally, the excessive sorrow that life now will be life forever. And this was the one that was the most surprising to me when I was praying through this. And we said last week that it's not so much the fear that my life is going to get worse as much as we live in the fear that this is the best my life will ever get. And if we deal, and I mean, I'm telling you, feel free to use those to create your own, like, I think these are just all mine, and so I just have the privilege now of having to say all my stuff out loud into a microphone. There's a lot of ways to know that we have a lack of trust in God. I'm trying to find some that we can all relate to here. And so Resolve says, I'm going to name these, and I'm going to overcome them. I'm going to finally be honest, and I'm going to finally say that I have these issues, and I'm going to overcome them, but at the point of attack... When the moment comes where the desire to step away, to hide, to not be honest happens, it's at the point of attack that we desperately need. We cannot just want the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit at the point of attack. Honesty creates weakness. In any relationship, not just the one with our Heavenly Father. When you're honest with somebody, you are never more vulnerable than when you're being honest. Honesty creates weakness. Weakness creates space. And the Holy Spirit fills spaces.
Honesty creates weakness. Weakness creates space. And the Holy Spirit fills spaces. So many of us don't feel the power of the Spirit because we're not roomy enough, because we're holding on to too much. We're not letting go of things we're afraid to let go of. And so the Spirit waits because he fills spaces. This is why he shows up at the beginning of Genesis, because there's nothing on the earth. It's formless and void, and the Spirit's hovering over it because he hovers over space. He hovers over Mary. Why? Because she said, be it unto me according to your word. And she created space. He shows up in Acts chapter 2. Why? Because they waited for all of those days, maybe weeks, for the Holy Spirit to show up. And in that waiting, every day that went by, created space. And when there was enough space, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Job can be totally honest before God because Job has a lot of space that's been created in his life. And the rich young ruler walks away tightly gripping everything he can't let go of. And there's no space. Jesus is so strategic when he speaks to the rich young ruler. He says, have you uh, fulfilled the command to not murder? Yes. Not commit adultery? Yes. Not steal? Yes. Not bear false witness? Yes. Have you honored your father and mother? Yes. Jesus leaves out the first one. Do you have no other gods besides me? He doesn't ask him that. And watch this. He doesn't ask him if he's kept the Sabbath holy. Because the reality is, money is this man's God. And because he's holding on to something he shouldn't have, he can't rest. Anxiety is the product of us holding on to things that God wants to hold on to, and we realize that we can't take care of them the way that he can, and so that's where anxiety comes from. Jesus said, we're not even going to talk about the Sabbath because there is no rest in your life because you're holding on to stuff that you can't get rid of, which means you're walking around with the burden of being responsible for the stuff that you can't get rid of, and it's weighing you down. Jesus says, this one thing you lack, go sell all that you have. And in other words, what Jesus said is you lack the first commandment. You followed everything, but you haven't followed the first commandment. Sure, I have. I had a friend who asked me, do you think alcoholics are people who get drunk all the time? And I said, no. I think an alcoholic is anybody who needs even one amount of alcohol to be able to be normal. So you could have half a glass of wine, but if you need that half a glass of wine, if your night won't be good unless you have that half a glass of wine, then you're dealing with alcoholism. Let me rephrase. You're dealing with addiction. So they said, well, that's not me. I said, well, let's test that because we're both going to a wedding this weekend. Don't have a drink. They got really upset with me, and and we really haven't talked much since. This is probably, what, like 15, 16 years ago? Oh, my God. It's, it's crazy. I feel like I won that one, but it's, that's not the point. That's not the point. <laughs> point made. It's the reality that we're not bowing down to things. We're not worshiping them in some kind of seance way. But whatever we, just, whatever we won't let go of, that thing is keeping us from being able to be honest before God because we will never talk to God so long that he will then ask us about the stuff we don't want to let go of. We will end every conversation when it gets close to the vulnerable thing that I won't let go of. 
So what do we need to go and sell? What do we have to be honest about? We have to be like Job and say, all right, God, deep breath, deep sigh, here we go. Here's the things in my life that I'm afraid of, that I'm not going to let go of. I had this moment this week, and I, I feel like this is okay to talk about. I had this moment this week where we were driving in the car, and I almost got hit. And I remember thinking to myself, Lord, thank you for protecting me, namely because Sophia's in the car with me. And then I had this thought, hmm, but if, I feel weird asking you to protect my daughter because there's people that I know that have lost their kids in car accidents. Then I'm in the car like, why would you do something like that? Like, how do I pray protect my daughter and not feel bad for praying that when you haven't protect other people's? And guess what? I know people who are Christians and also tithe and their kids got killed. So whatever we think magic trick happens up here when we tithe, that, that God is not bound. He's not a slave to my giving. This is terrifying. Don't be super quick to say amen today. I don't need responses today. I want us to be horrified today. And it, it made me afraid because I said, Lord, I know good people who have faced tragedy. And I felt the Holy Spirit say, you're right. And he stopped talking. And I felt afraid. And it created space. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit over the next few weeks, please fill this space. Because I feel vulnerable. I feel nervous. I haven't loved somebody like this. This is gripping. The thought of losing them. I want to know that there's something religious I could do that would keep that from happening. So with that set, let's talk about this. <laughs> that baby is like, well, you better not be talking about me. I'm going to be fine. <laughs> I'm going to be fine. I'm going to preach in this church one day. And if you don't let me, I'm just do it now. <laughs> Instant response to triggers. What do we need to go and sell in order to be able to have honesty and trust working in our lives? If we respond instantly to triggers, we need to go and sell the idea that the blessed life is a drama-free life. If we're really going to be honest, we have to stop getting mad at God that drama happens. We just have to because Jesus' life had drama in it, and none of our lives are as good as his. And if his life had drama, everybody in this room is going to have drama in their life. So we just have to admit it and move on with it, and it's terrifying. But we just have to take it. It is a fact of life that we have to stop thinking that because I'm good, because I tithe, because I give, God is going to keep drama from happening in my life. He's not. If worst case scenario, I'm going to be the drama in your life. There's going to be drama in our lives, and we have to finally name it and say, you know what, I'm going to stop trying to avoid it, and I need you, Holy Spirit, to help me rise up when it happens. Help me be bigger than the drama. Help me be able to enter the drama like Jesus entered Herod's praetorium, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He uttered not a word. I don't need to respond. I just need to trust. That's how we need to be with the drama in our life. Praying that it would go away. We're going to be spinning our wheels in the mud all day. We have to be willing to be honest and say drama will be there. And maybe the better I am, the more I'll feel it. Because the more I get sanctified and the more purified I become, the more I feel the drama around me. So many of us think we wake up depressed. You might not be depressed. You might just be feeling the burden of a broken world. When we have excessive conversation during the unresolved, when, we're, when we lack trust in God to deal with unresolved moments, we have to go and sell the idea that all will be resolved before we pass away. Everyone in this room is going to die. 
with issues still left undone. You will not button everything up in your lifetime. I've said this before, but I refuse to preach garbage, sugar-coated, feel-good messages from this pulpit. We will die with issues still unresolved, with our legacy still in doubt, with wondering, is history going to be good to me when it looks back on me? We have to, the space that you're feeling right now needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But if you avoid creating the space, you'll be spinning your religious wheels all day. You won't button everything up. It doesn't mean you don't work to, but it means we faithfully deal with one unresolved issue at a time and always say with Jesus in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done. Because the only one who can ever say it is finished and mean it is Jesus. He's the only one. And guess what? He died with things still left unresolved. You ready? That impulsive seclusion and indulgence due to the fear of tragedy. This is where we're going to trust our relationship right now. We have to go and sell the idea that protection is for this life only. God's protection is that there's an inheritance reserved for us in heaven that we will all lay hold of one day. But his protection doesn't necessarily mean safety now. Amen. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily mean safety now. You're telling me no one in Indonesia was a Christian when that tsunami hit and 12,000 people, including babies, were buried. This is what we like to do. A hurricane hit New Orleans. It's because of voodoo. Hurricane hit Indonesia. Oh, it's third world. It's voodoo. We just say voodoo for everything. <laughs> Somebody opens fire in the church must have been. They must pray to Mary. I've heard this. I'm making up jokes. I've heard this because we refuse to admit that if we do things right, something bad could still happen. Ask Jesus. Ask Peter. Ask every apostle. Jesus said to him, you will not die the way you want to die. Someone's going to kill you. God's protection is what is undefiled and reserved for us that moth and rust and thief cannot break in and steal. And right now it's in heaven. It will be ours one day, and then we will know that we are fully protected. Raise your hand if you're at the Revelation Bible study. At the Revelation Bible study, we said God does not come back in time. He comes back to time. And so when he comes back to time, when Jesus returns, he comes back to every time at the same time. So there's nobody in our past that's closer to the return of Christ than we are because when Jesus comes back, he comes back to all of time at the exact same moment. So everybody in our past receives him as much as everybody in our future at the same moment. And in that moment of his return, when he makes all things new, every tragedy, every hurricane, every tornado, every earthquake, everything that was broken, every mass shooting will be restored. And then we will know that we were always protected. But right now, we won't. And so the space that that creates when I say it. it, I'm afraid of saying this out loud because I, I feel that like sort of like name it and claim it in reverse where I feel like if I say this out loud, it's going to happen. Almost cursed. Really did. Dad, I almost cursed us now. 
I really did. I almost got really mad about that for a second. We don't name and claim our blessings. We need to name and claim our fears. We're so busy naming and claiming our blessings, trying to use them to mask our fears. Say what you're afraid of to God. You will never walk away more free than when you're honest with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Even if he doesn't even respond to you, when you can finally be honest with him and walk away, you walk away free. I could lose something dear to me right now today. But they're not lost forever. And that's protection. Overanalyzing of the future. We need to go and sell the idea that my past and mistakes won't matter. We have no idea how disrespectful it is as Christians when we say, you know what? God doesn't remember your past. Your past is washed in the blood. We don't realize how disrespectful it is because when people have been victimized by their past and we say it doesn't matter, that actually could hurt somebody. Notice every time we say that, we're always the victimizer. It's always our mistake when we say it. It's never a mistake done to us when we say that. Usually when the preacher says, you know what, what happened in the past is covered in the blood, we're usually talking about our mistakes, but we're never talking about the people those mistakes were made against. It still matters for them. Some people are living in the heartbreak and the disillusion and the lack of trust that our mistakes have made in the past, and it does matter to God. My past matters. It doesn't keep me from him. That's what we're trying to say. Whether I'm the victimizer or the victim, it doesn't keep me from him. That's washed in the blood. The blood makes all of my garbage and all of my good. It gets it into the presence of God. That's what we're saying. But my past in this life, of course it's going to matter. I'm still untying knots from my past. The devil still chirps to me about my past. And honestly, when we even say that, I laugh because my, my past 10 minutes before the service began is pretty bad. I woke up this morning with a family and had to leave the house. Not many of us do that very well. Today actually went pretty well. Like, that's, why I, that's why I knew I could say it today. <laughs> Last week, probably not a good idea to make that joke. We have to wake up to the idea that just because something is forgiven doesn't mean the consequences won't reverberate a little bit or have some aftershocks in this life. We're lying. I'm lying if I tell you it won't. It's not true. Pastors can get up there and say, smile better, claim the right things, say the right things. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. There's going to be moments where our past shows up. And it's not even the devil. It's just another dimension that God wants to heal. And he's going to heal it at his pace, in his time, his way. And we can't fight against it with disclaimers and affirmations and yelling Bible verses at God. He wrote it. He knows his story. He doesn't need us yelling verses at him. Really, talk to somebody the way we talk to God. We say his words back to him. It's what three-year-olds do. It's repeating. Go clean your room. Go clean your room. I work all things together for good. You work all things together for good. We have to live into the verses that we quote. You can't just quote them. Anybody can quote them. Atheists could quote them. We need to live them. We need to know them. They need, we need space created in our life so the Holy Spirit can come and, and let those verses be seeds that grow in my heart. That my soul can quote them back to God, not just my mouth. That my heart would know. That my mind would know. That my anxiety would know. That my depression would know. That my cancer would know. That my broken heart would know. That Jesus is Lord even over my cancer. 
even over my broken marriage, even over my broken finances, even over the abuse that's been laid down onto my life, even over my failure at work, my failure as a parent, every, anything you're dealing with. You could quote verses at God all day long, but if you don't create honesty in your heart and say, God, I can't get out of, I can't get out of my past way. I keep getting tripped up on it. And he says, well, I've been wanting to talk to you about it. If at that point, that moment right there, you don't say, okay, fig leaves off. Let's talk. If you finally get to the place where you just say, I don't care. I am afraid. I do have concerns. I do have idols. I do, I, I have, I'm, not, I'm not talking to people the right way. I'm terrified of what might happen. I'm terrified my children aren't, aren't going aren't gonna to follow you. And by the way, God, you told me they were, and they're not. So I'm kind of mad at you too. Until we can do that, we will never walk in the power of the Spirit. Vulnerable, broken, space-creating honesty is the space that the Spirit fills. And finally, excessive sorrow that life now will be life forever. We have to go and sell the idea that God doesn't sometimes bless us with lack. Take all the prosperity preaching you've ever heard and get on a plane, go visit Matthew Thomas in India, stand up in his pulpit, and tell people that if they tithe, God will bless them financially. I dare you to. Is that just because America is the new Israel? It doesn't work in every time and in every place, and therefore it can't be a doctrine. It could be advice, but it can't be a doctrine. It could put us in a position to create the possibility for that stuff to happen for sure, but it can't be doctrine. Tell that to the martyrs. Tell that to those first two victims from the Columbine shooting how many years ago. If you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, well, they tithed. God bless them with lack. This is dangerous, what I'm saying right now. But John Piper wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. And the title of the book changed my life. What if God allows something into our life so that the world can see that those things don't have a claim on our heart? See, when it's a martyr, if I tell the story of a martyr getting tied to the post and praying the Eucharist prayer over his own body, asking that his flesh would become bread, and then the centurion who lit him on fire gets saved in the moment and writes in his memoirs, it smelled like a bakery. We love those stories. When it's somebody being martyred, we love those stories. But what if it's somebody who was faithful with their cancer? God doesn't cause it. He doesn't give it. This is the mystery of the Godhead. In this time and space that we live in right now, he allows things. He allows them because he knows he will always have the final word on them for eternity. But while he's allowing it, 
We could spend all of our time hiding and rebuking it. We could pray that people would be healed. You all, we got a call for the elders. Get oil and pray that people will be healed. But here's the reality. When we've done the things that we know God gave us to do, then we stand in our lack or our sickness or our brokenness and say, okay, I did the things that you told me to do. Now I'm going to be faithful. And I'm going to show people how to live broke in a way that shows that money wasn't my treasure to begin with. I'm going to show people how to live in sickness in a way that shows my physical health wasn't my idol to begin with. Jesus is better than a bank account. He's better than a physical body. Because here's the reality. Lazarus' healed body was no closer to a resurrected body than his dead body was. When Lazarus got up out of the tomb, he could still catch a cold. And he died again. Healing is meant to point to something else. It's meant to point to the world that Jesus is Lord, and he will heal if he knows it's going to bless somebody else's life. But we have to be ready, like Job, to say, okay, the Lord giveth. And in the space that this creates, I want to resolve this. I have read so many because I learned at the feet of the worst Gamaliel ever, Pastor Mark Arstead. And I learned how to argue. And then God gave me a sparring partner to marry. And I have fine-tuned those skills. And I have answers for even the dilemmas that I gave. But here's the reality. Some Christian is going to die today of a disease. So who cares if we could give an apologetic for it? The point is, are we faithful? Do we see God giving us lack? In, in 2013, God told Jacqueline and I, we had no idea where it was heading, but he told us this year, we're, I'm taking all of your money. Cars broke down. We had one car. I worked in White Plains. She worked here. I mean, you name it. Everything that could go wrong that year went wrong. And we realized God just wants us to be faithful at lack. He blessed us with lack. So that the world around us could see that we're not happy just because we have money in the bank. We're happy because Jesus is alive. That's why we're happy. Hey, John, I'm going to close if you want to come on up here, please. So now I'm going to turn. I've done my best to create havoc. I've done my best to frighten, to make uncomfortable. And here's why. We can't be people who want the Holy Spirit. We have to be people who need him. Job needs him. The rich young ruler didn't. The book of Job was written to show us that we're all the rich young ruler. We have to sell what we have and can't let go of. And I am going to use it as a metaphor because if I only talked about it as money, then that would also be disingenuous because it has to do with worship. Whatever is in our lives that we won't let God talk about and we won't talk to him about it. You need to do what I call drawing a triangle around it, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Name it. Pull it out. Find Waldo and pull it out. And name it before him. I haven't let you talk to me about this in a long time because I'm afraid of what you might say. But listen to me. We also have to sell what we don't have and can't stop thinking we should. Some of us are holding on to actual things. And some of us are holding on to the vain hope of having something. Anything 
that we won't talk to God about or let him talk to us about has to be named today. We have to finally say it. I had to come to grips and say, God, I have fallen for this baby girl that you've given me. When she was an infant, I was taking care of Jacqueline, who was taking care of the baby. But the minute Sophia and I start interacting, the minute I hear her run and hide when I come in the front door, man, it flips your heart out, something fierce. And then there's that fear in me. Maybe some people don't, don't deal with this. You deal with your own stuff. But for me, it's that fear of loss. I, I, I feel it. I deal with it. I work on it. I have to pay attention to it. And I had to say to God, she's yours. And I trust you. And I'm, I'm terrified. And my prayer has to end right there because there isn't anything else I could say that really feels like it could help. But I'm just saying, God, and, and where I can't trust you, please help me to. Work on me. I'm going to keep coming back to you on this one. I'm going to stop hiding it from you. I'm going to stop being afraid to say it. You knew my thoughts before you ever put me together. I need the Holy Spirit in my life for some things. Who has perfect faith? Our faith wanes. We need to name it. We need to say it. Some of us are afraid to, to let go and forgive somebody. Some of us are afraid to let somebody get away with it. Some of us are afraid to say, Lord, I just want to enjoy my job. And we haven't said it to God because we don't want him to make us keep the one we have. But what if he does? What if he says, I will grant you your enjoyment over this job that you've been trying to get out of? What if for some of us, he's, we know he's saying this relationship is over? And for some of us, we want him to be saying that, and he's not. And we've stopped talking to him about it. We have to name it today. Why don't we all stand to our feet? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.